Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, classical liberalism and the Republican Party, and before people start sending us letters, I should point out, Richard, that this is the first in a two-part series that we're going to be doing on your political principles and how they relate to each of the major political parties. They'll each get their turn. So let me start before we get into maybe some some criticisms of the way that the, the parties operate today. Let's start with um, a, a historical backdrop. Um, first of all, some modern history. Before we get into criticisms, when we look at the Republican Party as somebody who holds classical liberal principles, in recent history – what would you say would be the, the party's high watermark, the point at which it was the most amenable to people who hold political principles like yours? Well, I think that for most people, the conventional answer is probably the correct one. Uh, it would be the first year or two under the Reagan administration where the man came in with a relatively clear ideology and was trying to cut back on such things as union power. There was the David Stockman issues with respect to the budget, the FAA strike and so forth. And at least in foreign affairs, a clear clarion call for the superiority of Western democracies and Western market institutions over their Soviet rivals. Uh, Reagan could not sustain this throughout his entire career. Uh, he lost the Senate in 1986. Robert Bork was the most immediate casualty of that decision. But as always is the case with the presidency, ideology is an important part of what you do, but you tend to get dragged down by current events that are often beyond your control. But if you take as a kind of a general picture, the free market reforms, modest though they were, but nonetheless real in the early part of the Reagan years and the breakdown of the Soviet Union in the last part of the Reagan years, you would say that was the case in which domestically and foreign, uh, the Republican Party probably was at its best. It is not a mistake uh, that this was also the period at which in England, Margaret Thatcher was in fact in charge and she was muscular in foreign affairs too with the Falkland Islands, for example, and had an even bigger problem to deal with given the fact that England doesn't have a Democratic Party, but a labor party in dealing with labor reforms and union reforms, which force major confrontations there, which are larger than anything you have in the United States. So it was a period. I can't say it was glorious, although it was certainly hopeful. Remember, the size of government grew under Reagan. And if you want one simple measure as to whether or not things are good or bad, where we are today, more government is presumptively bad, less government is presumptively good. It's not that you want zero government. It's just that you're way past the point of the optimal size. And looking further back in the history of the Republican Party, it should be noted because this is something that's sometimes forgotten now because it's sort of dissipated. But there is there is a progressive tradition when you go back further, a period in which the Republican Party would not have been that amenable to a lot of those classical liberal views. Yeah, I mean, look, the Progressive Party, uh, it's a basically the term progressive is now coming back into vogue today, mainly under the Obama situation. But if one goes back when Teddy Roosevelt became president in 1900 or so after our friend in 1901 when McKinley was shot, he certainly thought of himself as a progressive. He had two terms, left office, and then with a rather large ego and a rather sort of deep dissatisfaction with what was going on by the Taft administration, he ran independently on the Progressive Party in 1912. This was not any sort of sometime type venture. Progressivism was an extremely powerful force. As you move forward a little bit, the next really prominent 
Republican progressive was Herbert Hoover. Uh, he was actually thought of as a potential nominee on the Democratic as well as the Republican Party in 1920. And there is no question that if you're worried about daring do and administrative skills in large and complex operations, Hoover was the main man for this. He organized most of the military, or not the military, but the civilian support effort for the military in World War One, and he was responsible for the rescue of huge amounts of things that went on in Europe at the breakdown of the war. And when he was Secretary of Commerce, he was essentially a big government guy. Um, one of the things he did was to usher through the Federal Radio Act of 1926, which gave very powerful control over the spectrum to a nascent federal radio commission. People do not know this, but he actually organized a conference on how it is that states could more effectively implement zoning laws. He couldn't regulate this stuff directly, so what he did is he managed to put forward a very serious set of guidelines on these issues. He becomes president in 1929 or so, uh, is dealing with the war. Um, he thinks of himself in some sense as a free market guy, but he certainly doesn't act that way as a president. He's responsible for the Smoot-Hawley tariff, um, which he did not veto even when urged for by a large number of free traders, including Paul Douglas, a Democratic senator in later years uh, from the state of Illinois. Um, he raised taxes at this particular point to a high of about 62% on top capital, um, which certainly retarded a return to economic growth. Um, he was very strongly pro-union in the sense that he passed and signed the Davis-Bacon Act, which basically called for prevailing wages for all employees in the North. The explicit intention of this thing was to keep, quote-unquote, the colored workers in the South from taking away jobs of white union members in the North. Um, he was involved with the Norris-LaGuardia Act, which essentially limited in federal court the scope of various kinds of injunctions and labor cases. Oh, the guy was in many ways a progressive, and quite explicitly so. So the change between him and Roosevelt was not as dramatic as one would see. In fact, I think to be more accurate about it, the actual change in governance strategy between Coolidge on the one hand and Hoover on the other was actually probably greater than that between Hoover and uh, Roosevelt. Hoover lost because of the debacle that had been created, but his progressive policies under slightly different guises, perhaps more aggressive in terms of the cartelization of industries under our friend Roosevelt, in fact, was a continuation just to take it the next step forward. When you get to the Eisenhower years in the 1950s, Eisenhower is an extremely skillful president, but his major achievement was a consolidation and a rationalization of the New Deal. It was not fire and brimstone stone in an effort to return to a kind of market principles that awaited in fact to Reagan. So what we've done now is had a quick tour of the last hundred or so years of American politics. When it comes to the two Bushes, I think George the First was not a particularly strong pro-market guy. He wasn't opposed to it, but it just wasn't where his heart was. And I think the same can be said, at least in the early years, about the, the son as well. He was more concerned with foreign affairs. He was in favor of lower taxes, which I think did a lot of good. But he was not adverse. Either of them was adverse to the creation of new and large federal bureaucracies, which a classical liberal would find very difficult to support. Which, of course, brings us to today, and today there's you won't find anybody, certainly anybody prominent really within the Republican Party who is willing to bear that progressive mantle the way that somebody like Hoover did. Tell me, Richard, looking at the political situation of today, of 2014, a classical liberal looks at the Republican Party, the only one of the two parties that seems that pays them at least rhetorical respect. Um, how far are you willing to take that? How much trust should a classical liberal be willing to place in the Republican Party and what are sort of the, the areas of difficulty? 
Well, it's actually very, very complicated. If you start looking at standard economic issues, you can say, look, I don't like what the Republicans say and I don't like what the Democrats can say. But it's quite clear you don't like what the Democrats say on these matters a lot more than you don't like what the Republicans say. And the most obvious elephant in the room, I, I use this as a pun, I guess, um, is, of course, the Obamacare statute where all the Republicans were against it and all the Democrats were in favor of it. And my own view about a statute like this is it's an innate system of regulation takes us further and further from a competitive market and doesn't resolve the fundamental question of how it is you secure access for lower income people who may not have other choices in the marketplace. Uh, but the major proposal that I put forward along with my friend David Hyman was that if you want to fight Obamacare, what you have to do is to point to all the areas of regulation that you're willing to deregulate and hope that if you can do that, you can lower costs and by lowering costs, increase access while reducing government spending. And the Republicans had no truck for that. This was a very different campaign that they fought in 2010 than the one they fought against the Clinton care proposals in 1993. So what they were doing basically was trying to figure out how you soften the particular blow. I don't think that they were trying to figure out how it is you engage in active acts of deregulation. So in that sense, the Republicans were surely better than the Democrats by the lights that I would hold on these things. But it's not as though they had a consistent free market application of how principles worked and we're prepared to say, look, the really complicated issues of healthcare are not brought about by free markets but are brought about by their regulation. Indeed, I mean, if you go back and you look, for example, at the Romney campaign, he goes into Florida and he's got a sign called Protect Medicare right there on the podium indicating this is not a guy who's about to upset the status quo because he understands that senior citizen votes are actually critical to him and he thinks that the large and indefensible transfer payments to this group are something that should be left more or less sacrosanct. And, you know, the difficulty is you try to figure out how to reform Medicare, it, just the way George Bush the first or the second tried to reform Social Security. Once you have settled expectations and people who are in the program who cannot go back to the workforce at 82 and infirm and so forth, it's not at all clear how you do unravel these knots. But the Republicans have not tried to staunch the flow. They've only tried to essentially uh, basically keep Medicare on a stable situation, fight the Medicaid extension, and fight Obamacare. So they're doing much better than the Democrats who want to expand all of these programs, but it's nothing that you would want to say as ideal. Uh, a second point, and I'll just mention it briefly, hard to be a free market Republican with classical liberal inclinations if you have a system in which their price supports agricultural protections and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, most of which give very substantial benefits to farm states, many of which are in Republican hands. And the agriculture market has always been one which has been a massive embarrassment. And yet, if you go to a place like Iowa and ask yourself whether Grassley and Harkin are going to take different views on the whole question of whether or not you give ethanol subsidies, you know the answer to that question. What's good for Iowa is good for the nation and for the world, and so therefore both of them will support the interventionist policy. Final question that I'll put to you. Over the last few years, there has been um, in some quarters a suggestion that the biggest sort of classical liberal or libertarian push that the Republican Party has seen is, is the emergence of the Tea Party movement. As a classical liberal, how do you, how do you regard – the rise of the Tea Party movement, and do you see it as being consonant with those principles? The Tea Party is very enigmatic. Um, basically, the 
early stages of the Tea Party, it was more in, more coherent and less diffuse because they came up on a platform which largely says people ought to be engaged in acts in which they take the consequences of their own decision and they can't come crying to Uncle Sam and to the states to bail them out when they make a mistake. And this kind of tough-minded um, individualism makes in many cases perfectly good sense because there's no question that if you give subsidies to various kinds of activities, uh, people will engage them to excessive amounts and if you subsidize their failures, it will only be worse. And so, for example, a Tea Party resentment of something like the various kinds of subsidies that we give to wind and solar energy are certainly very, very welcome. The difficulty with the Tea Party is the difficulty with all third parties. As it starts to gain coherence, it has for itself for the first time um, aspirations of getting elected into key offices. And now several things start to intrude. First of all, their platform has to cover lots of other things that were not the source of its original situation or its original inspiration. And, you know, what is the Tea Party principles on Medicare? What is it on free trade and so forth? And the people who were kind of perfectly happy to agree on the importance of um, individual responsibility and the dangers of public subsidies in general all of a sudden now start to break from one another on these various kinds of issues. So you're not quite sure who represents the Tea Party in any event. Uh, the second problem that something like the Tea Party has is the issues on which it starts to break, basically break its teeth to begin with are those on which sort of strong market solutions are going to work really well. But as you have to become a full service party, now you're going to have to worry about things like national defense and surveillance and a variety of other issues. And it's just not as clear that the small government bias that you had with economic regulation is going to really carry over into these kinds of areas. So if you look at the Rand Paul platform, for example, he's very down on interventionism, at least he was. Now it's not even clear what his position is. Very skeptical about the NSA and the surveillance that it does in the name of wiretapping and national security and so forth. I tend to disagree with them on that particular point. And the second problem is once you start to become big, you actually have to choose candidates. And I don't remember the name of the woman who was in um, uh, Nevada who managed to lose decisively to Harry Reid when a competent candidate probably would have been able to win. But you start picking Tea Party candidates in primaries who are so far off the beaten track, who have so little general electoral um, ability and significance, it's easy for you to get people whom the country or the state at large will regard as eccentric and lose seats that are winnable if you kept a more traditional Republican lines. And it's hard for me to imagine any Republican senator who would have been one-tenth as bad from the point of view of a classical liberal as a person like Harry Reid, who now sits in power in that area. So the party, like all third parties, can be disruptive as well as informative. And in fact, the great danger in 2016 is, does the party become a spoiler for traditional Republicans or can they work out their grievances? I have no doubt that, you know, classical liberal principles of moderate government, flat taxes, and all the rest of that stuff are, in fact, the best recipe for getting out of difficulty. Uh, but I'm not quite sure that the Tea Party is going to advance the probability of getting elected as president and getting control of Congress with people who share those objectives or come reasonably close to them. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thanks to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas on Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.